spend time with your family. But it's going to be a, a very a very touching service. As my prayer, we are going to have a candlelight communion service. And we are going to celebrate around the Lord's table together. And if you can't be here, we certainly understand that. But uh, please feel free to be here. If you have family coming in from the outside, be sure and let them know that we practice open communion here. What that means is, if you believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're, there's a place for you at our table. Amen? And, and so uh, we, we just celebrate being the family of God. We are in the fourth, we are at the fourth Sunday of Advent this week, and I'd like to take you to the Old Testament book of Isaiah for just one verse of Scripture, and uh, then I'll be elaborating on that a little bit. Uh, you see, seven centuries before Jesus was born, I'd like to think that God pulled back the curtain on the future. He told this prophet named Isaiah about a Messiah who would be coming, one who he would send to save his people from their sins, the one whose birth forms, uh, again, what I like to think of being a dividing line for history so that, you know, even today we date everything that's ever happened by how many years it occurred before or after uh, Christ. And Isaiah talks about that in verse number 6. Of chapter 9, he said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. How many of you said amen to that? He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. Lord Jesus, again, we're so grateful for your coming. Lord, we are grateful that even though we look back some 2,000 years today to your birth, uh, the exciting part of your coming for every one of us here this morning is that you made it possible for us to be reconciled with God. Lord, to know the peace of God that passes understanding is such an amazing blessing. And I pray that every one of us in this room this morning is in the process of experiencing that peace or soon will be because it's a peace that cannot be defined. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus never held public office. He was never a commander in any type of army or never accumulated great wealth never wrote a book, and yet he is without question the most influential person who ever walked the face of the earth. And so just as Isaiah and the rest of God's people looked forward back in Isaiah's day to a coming Messiah during the Christmas season, we look back uh, to his coming as this baby in a manger. And not only do we regard his birth, but perhaps even more significantly, those of us who have experienced Jesus, we understand that equally, if not more important than his coming as a baby was his life that he lived, and then, of course, his death on a cross, and most importantly, his resurrection from the dead. They are about the most influential person in history 
and they speak of the most significant events in history. And Jesus isn't just the founder of a religious movement. He isn't, wasn't just a good person while he was here or a, a wise philosopher or even an inspirational leader. This Jesus of whom we speak today is the Savior of the world. Think about that. He saved the entire world. Or at least those in the world who professed belief in his saving work. He's God. God who came to us in the flesh. The one by whom and for whom all things were created. And today on this fourth Sunday of Advent as the children shared with us. We, we prepare ourselves by looking at Jesus by this title that Isaiah gave him at the close of that sixth verse of Isaiah 9. Where he called him the Prince of Peace, one of the most well-known, well-loved titles of which Jesus is known. You'll remember back in the Christmas story, Luke chapter number 2, among other places, when the, when the angels announced his birth to the shepherds, what did they say? Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those people he favors. Now, it warms our hearts when we see this picture in our mind of a newborn baby in a manger being watched over by loving parents and worshipped by shepherds and eventually wise men who came to see him. And in our mind's eye of this scene, there's almost, it's so serene because we imagine that nothing can disturb this quiet, uh, worshipful scene uh, not even the rustling of animals in the same manger in which he was born. And we, we see that vision of peace. We, we picture that kind of tranquility because we see it every year on our Christmas cards, right? A peaceful scene. There's little nativity scenes that we place on our fireplace mantles, even in our hymns. We sang one earlier today. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. Sleep, not now, sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. Boy, don't you just love peace? Let me tell you something about peace. This peace that's described here, it doesn't last long. As Matthew tells us in his gospel as he elaborates on the Christmas story, when King Herod that the children read about this morning found out about the newborn king, he viewed this king, this whoever he was, as being a rival for his throne. And that so enraged him, Here's what he did. He ordered the slaughter of every male child under the age of two throughout the region of Bethlehem. Can you imagine? Sure doesn't sound much like peace to me. Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, we know the story. They barely managed to escape 
with their lives uh, going to Egypt because God told Joseph in a dream to take the child and, and take him to Egypt. And that was all designed to miss the murderous threats and, and carrying out of those threats by King Herod. Once they returned after Herod's threats were no longer in place, in the Word of God we're not told much about Jesus' boyhood or even his early manhood. It kind of just skips from the age of 12 when his parents found him in the temple until he's 30 years old when we see him being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. But we do know this, once Jesus began his public ministry, conflict, controversy followed him everywhere that he went. Not peace, conflict. There were times when Jesus intentionally provoked controversy. He repeatedly challenged and antagonized the religious ruling groups of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what we would call the church. On one occasion, Jesus even verbally attacked the church of that day. He said to them, he said, you're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites, blind guides, and snakes. Now, as I often like to joke, I'm sure he probably did that after the offering had already been received, but... You get my point. Uh, on, on another occasion, he verbally attacked them, comparing them to whitewashed tombs filled with dead man's bones. On an, yet another occasion, we're told where Jesus became righteously indignant. He had gone to the temple to, to pray, and there he found vendors and money changers in the temple of God, the center of the Jewish religion. And the Bible tells us that he made a whip out of cords, driving everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and with their oxen. And he also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned their tables. Peace? And then on the night when Jesus was arrested and brought before the Roman governor, whose name was Pilate, What did Jesus do? He frustrated the Roman governor by refusing to answer his questions or say anything in his own defense. And we're supposed to believe that this rabble-rousing revolutionary was the Prince of Peace. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples. You can find this in Matthew chapter number 10, verses 34 through 36. Now keep in mind, what did the angels say when they appeared to the shepherds? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. But in verse number 34 of Matthew 10, Jesus said, uh, that's not the correct. Uh, Yeah, it is. He said, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So what are we to make of all of that? What does it tell us? I think among other things that it tells us, it tells us that we need to revise this picture in our mind of Jesus meek and mild. 
Jesus wasn't meek and mild. At best, this picture of Jesus uh, is incomplete, this meek and mild picture, and at worst, it's misleading. And yes, Jesus, the good shepherd, he is. And yes, he cares for his people, and he's humble, and he's full of grace, and he's full of compassion. And yes, he instructed his disciples then and us now to let little children come to him. But Jesus was not a wimp. He was not weak. He wasn't effeminate or cowardly. He was courageous. He was bold. He was strong. And at times, he was even ferocious. Now, having set that as a backdrop to everything that I'm getting ready to say, I want to focus on something else that these verses that George had on the screen tell us. Not only do they indicate that Jesus is a different sort of man than perhaps what we thought, they also show that the kind of peace that he came to bring may be a different kind of peace than what we thought. Um, Think about this. Did Jesus come to bring peace between people? Well, that's the popular conception, and it's certainly true that he intended for, for those who are part of his body, the church, to, to live together in peace, right? Paul talks about that a lot in his writings. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 15, Let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. He said in Romans chapter number 12, Be in agreement with one another. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. So we know that at least peace between people is a part of it. In Christ, we can love one another by the power of God. Our, we, we see that in our church family. We, we live with the presence and the power of, of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And he brings, he brings peace to us, those of us who know him. There's something unique about the way that the followers of Jesus relate to one another. Can I just tell you that being at peace with other people requires something supernatural? You've probably figured that out with a neighbor or two. It requires something supernatural. Why? Because it's not natural. And that supernatural something is the Spirit of Christ in us. Now, that being said, eliminating all conflict between people is not only not possible, it's not even desirable. Did you know that? Matthew chapter number 10, again, the gospel, the good news of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, will sometimes cause division even in our most intimate relationships. Now, I'm guessing that there are some here this morning who have experienced that perhaps in your own family. You haven't condemned or judged those of your family who are not believers, but or you probably, hopefully, not even tried to insult them. And In fact, you love them as much as you ever have, but yet the mere fact that you have placed your faith in Christ seems to antagonize them. People who become followers of Jesus are sometimes ostracized, rejected, even defriended by their families and friends. 
He even, unfortunately, attacked on occasion. But that should come as no surprise to us because Jesus warned us that this exact thing would happen. It's an unavoidable consequence of the inherent divisiveness of the gospel. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a good term to use, but it's an accurate term. Do we hope and pray for the salvation of our unsaved loved ones? Of course we do. Of course. But until that happens, the chances are good that our faith in Christ will continue to offend them. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10. And why is that? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer. And the answer is found in 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are a scent of death leading to death, but to others the scent of life leading to life. Can I give you the gospel according to Terry translation of that? We who are believers, we smell like Jesus. We carry his spiritual aroma with us everywhere that we go. So to other believers, it's a fragrant aroma. We smell good to one another, right? And it's wonderful. But to unbelievers, we stink. We reek of some putrid odor to them. It's a stench in their nostrils. And and, and nothing short of their conversion is ever going to change how we smell to them. In fact, I can believe, I'll just throw this in for what it's worth. If our faith in Jesus Christ doesn't provoke a negative reaction whatsoever in unbelievers then perhaps we need to ask ourselves how much we really smell like Jesus. Chew on that for a while. Could it be that our peace has been purchased at the cost of our silence by completely avoiding all mention of our faith and conforming our behavior to the world around us rather than impacting the world around us with our faith? Even within the church... Calm isn't always a sign of health. Now, having said that, let me say this. I hate conflict. I hate it. I'd like to think that most people hate it. But, friends, if it comes down to a choice between truth and peace, truth always has to come first. Paul talked about that again in Galatians chapter 4, verse number 16. We find in that passage that that Paul apparently was battling some kind of doctrinal error in the church at, at Galatia. And there he says these words to that church, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Evidently there were some in that church who had taken offense at Paul's vigorous proclamation and defense of the gospel. But let me tell you what, friends, Paul was committed to teaching the truth even if it made people his enemy. When it came to sin, Paul was just as emphatic. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. He says, but now I'm writing you that you not associate with anyone who bears the name brother, that's a fellow member of the family of God, 
who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. Let's just take a quick vote. How many of you think that's going to promote peace? Yeah. And it will, but not in the short term. If you've ever been a part of a church that had to remove someone from membership, that is seldom a peaceful process. Why? Because people get angry. They choose sides. They spread rumors. Ultimately, they may even leave the church. Been parts of some situations where lawsuits were even threatened. (laughs) Be much more peaceful to just ignore the whole problem. Hope it goes away. I grew up in a church that when they had conflicts going on, their status was, oh, well, let's just give it to Jesus and sweep it under the rug and ignore the problem until it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, it's okay to give it to Jesus, but friends, we need to understand something. Primarily, Jesus uses people to deal with situations. And sometimes we, we need to understand that there are situations that have to, be, have to be dealt with. Now, obviously, don't run with that until you hear what I'm getting ready to say. Much wisdom and a lot of discernment are needed. Much love and much humility. What do I mean by that? Don't find the angriest, most bitter person that you can find to go try to correct or counsel someone. Anyone else acting out of a pride or arrogant spirit needs to deal with their own heart first. Amen? But even with all of those kinds of cautions, the point is still a valid one. Preserving the peace defined as avoiding all conflict is not the goal. The goal is honoring Christ with our lives and with our church that's the ultimate goal. So sometimes we have, to, we have to say and we have to do things which may disrupt the peace. At least temporarily, hopefully. And that's true for the body of Christ and it's also true of relationships between individuals. We have to act out of love and out of humility. Now we should carefully plan the time and the manner of speaking so as not to give offense to someone But friends, we have to be ready to repent ourselves before we call anyone else to repentance. To to confess our own sin before we confront the sin in others. But in the end, we have to be willing to speak the truth. Because that's the only way to achieve genuine, lasting peace. So what about another kind of peace that people desire? Perhaps... The peace of a smooth, trouble-free, issueless life. How's that working out for you? Can we expect Jesus to protect us from calamity and suffering, to shelter us from those storms and those issues of life? Well, the answer is mostly no. But it is true, however, that when we begin to follow Jesus, we remove some things from our lives, some of the attitudes, some of the behaviors that tend to create conflict. I can go down a short list, things like selfishness, 
Pride, greed, hatred, malice, contempt, dishonesty. How many of you want me to quit? The more you leave those things behind, what I'm saying is, the less we suffer the kinds of problems that those things cause. But the pain, uh, excuse me, the godliness and the sincere devotion to Christ do not guarantee us freedom from pain and suffering. In fact, we're guaranteed just the opposite. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 12, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus must be persecuted. Another translation says must suffer. It's a part of life. In other words, persecution and and difficulties, they're normal for a follower of Jesus. What's abnormal, what's unusual, are times when things are relatively smooth sailing. Why? Is it because God doesn't care about us so he brings all of these things to our lives? Is it because he likes to see us suffer? After all, we were told that he loves us, right? So if he loves us, we shouldn't have to suffer. Well, let me tell you something, friend. God uses times of grief and sorrow, other kinds of suffering, to reshape our character, to change and transform us, to increase our capacity for lasting joy in a way that nothing else will accomplish. Again, the Apostle Paul. Paul has a lot to say to us today, doesn't he? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and then I'll skip to 16 and 17. As a matter of fact, we sang this earlier. Paul said, we are pressured in every way but not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We're persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Can I put it to you this way? I wish sometimes Paul would have said it the way I like to say it, but God chose him, not me. (laughs) Whatever you're going through, God's preparing you for heaven. He's preparing you for heaven. You say, well, if we can't necessarily expect relational peace or, or peaceful circumstances, what about inner peace? What about, what about peace in my soul? Well, this is where I have some good news. Because God does indeed promise to us this type of peace if we follow Him. Did you catch that? If we follow Him. We can possess a deep, authentic peace in our hearts, even if our circumstances are anything but peaceful, even if everything in our life seems to be going crazy. Through prayer and faith in Jesus, Jesus can give us a peace that is so deep that nothing in the world can touch it. 
Listen to Jesus' words from that great passage in John chapter 14. He says to us in verse number 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. And then you skip over to chapter 16, and he says to us in verse number 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in the world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. Hmm. There is just a small catch to that, by the way. That kind of peace is not even absent from struggle. But rather, it's peace in the midst of struggle. You see, as long as we live in this world, we are at war with the flesh. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. I don't have the scriptures up there for George to put on the screen, but he, he talks about it in Romans 7. He says, you know, there's a war going on within me. My flesh wants me to do this, and I find myself doing that which I don't want to do. But on the other hand, the Spirit wants me to do this, but I find myself not doing what the Spirit wants me to do, but rather doing what the flesh wants me to do. There's a struggle even in the midst of the possession of that. And by the way, if you think you're exempt from that, if you're here and breathing this morning, then you're qualified. That's for every one of us. For the follower of Jesus Christ, there is genuine peace. Paul, again, Galatians 5, 17. The flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are in opposition to each other so that you don't do what you want to do. But there's genuine peace. Peace that's deeper and stronger than anything this world can offer. Even though there's an internal struggle with sin. You see, friends, when Christ returns, God will transform us so that we don't have to any longer be subject to temptation. But until that day comes, we're going to have a struggle going on within us. The flesh versus the spirit. And I mention this because there are many people, I believe, who have a for lack of a better term, a false peace. They think that they're doing well because they don't suffer from anxiety or worry like some folks seem to do. They have this positive, optimistic outlook on life. They're pleasant, they're agreeable, they're well-adjusted people. Yeah, that's a type of peace, but it's not always legitimate because their peace may not be a godly peace, or a true peace. It's the peace that comes when you fail to engage the enemy in battle. Hear me out on this, friends. Their minds aren't troubled, but only because they refuse to enter in con- into conflict with the sin in their lives. Can I, again, just make it real plain? Y- you know, it, it's... Let's say you have person A here who is a godly person, and you have person B over here who's a good person, not necessarily a godly person, but not necessarily an evil person, 
They do a lot of good things. Now, who do you suppose the enemy wants to attack in their faith? A or B? Point made. They refuse to allow the Holy Spirit to expose any kind of hidden corruption in their hearts. They look good on the outside. They they live these respectable lives. They don't cheat on their taxes. They don't cheat on their wives. They work hard. They don't get drunk. They don't swear. They don't look at pornography. They're model citizens and maybe even model church members. But deep down, in a place that may not be obvious to anyone else, There are these pockets of lust and rage and pride and envy and greed that go unacknowledged and untouched. They've made a truce with sin. They've said to sin something like this, as long as you don't mess with my life, I'll leave you alone. But listen to what Jesus said about that very thing. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 17. Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelations, he said, you think that you're rich. I lost my place. I've, I've become wealthy and need nothing. But Jesus goes on to say, you don't know that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. In other words, they think they're doing okay, but Christ sees them very differently. Doesn't... I I hope that doesn't describe any of us in this room this morning, but there are some who have purchased relief from struggle by making a truce with sin. You decided that the way to have peace in mind, peace of mind, is to leave your heart unexamined, to leave your sin unchallenged. I can guarantee you that's not going to be a peace that lasts very long. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said in the Old Testament about false shepherds, the unfaithful religious leaders of his day. He says in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse number 14, they've treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's no peace, there's no true lasting peace that that fails to deal honestly with the seriousness of, of this thing called sin. We have to face it. We have to confess it. And by God's grace and power, forsake sin. The good news is that Jesus not only can forgive our sins, but he can also break its power over us. In conclusion, Jesus truly does bring peace, but it's not the kind of peace that we expected him to bring. We have peace with one another by the power of His Spirit, but not at the expense of truth. Our peace doesn't consist in having a life free of trouble, but rather in having a quiet heart in the midst of trouble. We enjoy the blessing of inner peace, peace beyond anything that the world can give. It's tempered by this, and we recognize that it's tempered by this struggle with indwelling sin. In other words, our peace in this life, although it's very real and very precious, is incomplete. Our joy is tinged with sorrow from time to time. Our peace is leavened with suffering. And it's not by accident. It's entirely as it should be because God never... I want you to hear this if you don't hear anything else I say. 
God never intended for one of us in this room to ever be fully satisfied in this life. Did you catch that? God never intended for any one of us to ever be fully satisfied in this life. Why? Because he wants us to look forward to heaven. So to to yearn for that day when every promise that he's made to us is going to be fulfilled, every hope realized, every struggle brought to a conclusion. We've been talking about Advent now for four weeks. All of those gifts that prepare us for Christ's coming Hope, love, joy, peace. Here's how I look at them. They're just a down payment. They're just a down payment, a foretaste of what perfect peace and joy is to come. And that peace will come to us when Jesus Christ takes us to be with him. Musicians, would you come please? That's why, if you turn to the last page of the book, Revelation chapter number 22, verse number 20, the Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle John, after having seen everything that God wanted to show him about heaven, about the end times and everything that's going to happen, You come to chapters 21 and 22 and you see, we win. The church wins. The body of Christ wins. And that's the only reason why we could join John in verse number 20 and say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Now I'm going to share something with you. Real briefly, that I've done often, done often on the last Sunday or the, even the next to last Sunday of, of the year, I just can't help but think that maybe 2019 will be the year. I mean, I said that last year and he's got eight days left. But all that really means is we're 350 some days late. Uh, we're 350 some days closer than what we were the last time I said that. I got to tell you, friends, if Jesus comes in 2019, the first thing I want to say is I want to work hard at getting the good news to people between now and when that happens. But the most important thing I want to say to you is if he comes in 2019, I'm going to be ready. I'm ready right now. I'm ready right now. Jesus, if you want to come, even so be it. But until that time, he wants his church to be faithful in giving those who don't know what we know hope and love
and joy and peace. The kind of peace that can only come from a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Do you know anybody that needs those kinds of things in their life? Tell them before it's too late. Tell them before it's too late. Now, those of you who are thankful that He's given you hope and love and joy and peace, stand to your feet. We're going to sing this Christmas song. Where's Jacob? Oh, you're over there. I thought that was a player piano, I guess. This is a Christmas song. He came to be the light of the world. And let's sing it. And and if you haven't done it before, think of it as a Christmas song. But then when you get to that part about, I'll never know how much it costs. It's still a Christmas song, but it defines for us the reason why he came. Let's sing it together.